How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. Today I'm here with Max Isle, a PhD student at Cornell, an editor at Jadalia, and a Palestine solidarity activist. We're going to talk today about Palestine a little bit, but mainly about Syria. Uh, Max, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So, Max, I, you know, when uh, Trump launched those missiles at the Syrian airbase, I, I saw a Facebook post that you wrote. Uh, it was circulating on Twitter and in other places, and you said, six years of Qatari and Saudi propaganda has given a great gift to the U.S. regime, making those who oppose the violent dictatorship of U.S. capital feel sometimes guilty, muted, fumbling, silenced about doing so and making those who support it feel right and righteous in so doing. And I think that that feeling is something that I have personally been feeling for a really long time. Uh, guilty, muted, fumbling, silenced about opposing uh, imperialism, especially in Syria. And, and it's been really confusing for me. And so for you to, to write that, it, it, I... I felt a lot of um, a lot of relief reading that somebody else felt that way, and that's a big part of why I wanted to, to have you on the show. So, can you just elaborate on this idea of what what the, what what is this Qatari and Saudi propaganda? Because I think as people who know Palestine, we're familiar with the way the pro-Israel lobby works and the way uh, you know Israeli media and PR operations work in the West but the idea that there could be similar operations uh, coming from the monarchies in the Gulf is a uh, is fairly new from for me anyway yeah so I think it's uh, you, you can trace this back to the the founding of Al Jazeera and then the founding of Al Jazeera English uh, which is which is owned basically by the Qatari government. Um, and since that time, the, the Gulf states, which, you know, in consort with the U.S. government and U.S. ruling class have really built up their capacity substantially for their overall economies and specifically their media systems and have created kind of a large apparatus that, uh, that has played, uh, an interesting and complex role in terms of its overall service to uh, the U.S. ruling class. Um, and, and it's important to kind of to break these systems apart so that we see how each system, how each component of the system is playing uh, a unique role. Like in the same way that we see that the Israel lobby's primary role is it's to attack critics of Israel, but also to make sure that Israel stays separate and the Palestine case stays separate from other other progressive movements. And this isn't to absolve the rest of the, of the propaganda system or the elites more broadly. It's just to identify the specific roles, each, uh, you know, each conglomerate or each set of conglomerates, uh, plays in the larger system. So one portion of this has been that, you know, US, US media consumers, uh, grew to 
first of all, you know, we were like, okay, we want to center Arab voices. And second of all, we were like, anyone who supports Palestine is being transgressive. So we can take that as a valuable point of reference on other regional affairs. So this kind of made uh, news guests like Al Jazeera English and more recently the New Arab and Middle East Eye uniquely suited uh, to use their occasional or you know sometimes muted but usually decent support and work on Palestine to cover up for the larger uh, U.S. Qatari Saudi regressive agenda in the region more broadly, um, and so. What we can see uh, since 2011 and more are like a, a variety of almost formulaic attacks on the left in Syria. The left isn't doing this on Syria. Uh, the left is all Putinites. The left is supporting genocide. Uh, the left has a double standard. The left should apply the same standards as it does on Palestine to the Syrian revolution. The left isn't adequately supporting the revolution. Um, and at the same time, in, in its so-called news coverage, putting forth, uh, you know, saying that this, uh, you know, whatever is occurring in Syria has no foreign elements. It's not getting support from the U.S. government. It's not, there's no sectarian elements and so forth. So it's been kind of a, a one-two punch. And the, the result has been, not, and it's not them alone who's been doing it, of course. There's lots of other uh, organizations that are doing it. I'm, I'm, can discuss them further on, but these uh, groups and uh, media platforms have played a really effective role, unfortunately, in confusing uh, Anglophone media consumers about what exactly has been going on in Syria and more specifically the negative role played by Turkey, Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and of course behind and largely coordinating them, the United States. Well, Al Jazeera, just, I just want to start with Al Jazeera because Al Jazeera was a big story in 2003 uh, during the invasion of Iraq, the U.S. invasion of Iraq and occupation of Iraq started then. And we were all watching Al Jazeera fascinated by the, the whole idea that, you know, a U.S. war would no longer enjoy that, the kind of monopoly of information that it, that it had previously. And so it was this incredibly refreshing thing, like here's people from the region with their own powerful media organization that has uh, a way of breaking through that kind of propaganda wall. And I think that is a big part of why we're having a hard time mapping that, that opening onto what, what's going on in Syria now, because we're expecting that same level of, yeah, I guess opposition to power that we saw Al Jazeera do in 2003 but it doesn't seem to be working the same way. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, and, you know, this is really the fruit of what, uh, you know, what the, the Gulf media and the U.S. media have insisted on calling the Arab Spring. Um, and, you know, without entering into a, a kind of a divisive polemics um, about what, what has occurred there, I mean, I think one can say, one, that, you know, there were people who were expressing... It, uh, legitimate discontent about the prevailing orders in most of the region, um, but with very different levels of mobilization depending on the country. For example, Yemen has had the largest per capita mobilizations, um, and it's gotten maybe some of the least coverage, especially in comparison to those mobilizations. And the reverse is the case in Syria. So there's that, there was that aspect. Um, and then it was also the occasion for Saudi Arabia and Qatar 
sometimes in coordination, sometimes uh, backing uh, various sorts of counter of uh, regressive sides to put in place to kind of recompose the governing system and to battle for uh, you know a recomposition of regional hegemony. And um, Qatar has really deployed powerfully deployed Al Jazeera in uh, in the service of this broader goal. Um, and one of the you know one of the one of the crucial things was that in 2011. Many people were observing that Al Jazeera was basically silent on what was happening in Bahrain, uh, whereas it was, you know, recording and uh, publicizing in a wildly disproportionate manner compared to the scale of the protests. What was occurring in Libya and Syria, both of which were, you know, not at all coincidentally, on the U.S. target. And here we can see that. Within the largest, you know, within the most basic parameters, we can see that who they chose to target and who they chose, which protests they chose to ignore, basically were in concordance with the framework and the agenda of the United States. And then another another point that you raise, and and you raised it just earlier, uh, but also in your feed, where you say, "My feed." Uh, my feed is filled with folks ripping into an imaginary left that has been silent on the Obama regime's bombing campaigns against Syria. And you say, well, find me an organized anti-war formation that's been silent on these bombing runs and tell me how many are silent versus how many are opposed. And so uh, the, the fact that the target of all this is always the left, even when it's, often when it's leftists even making these speeches, people who call themselves leftists and identify as leftists that say, you know, the left is pro-Assad and the left is pro-Putin um, and and it, it strikes me that you know on the one hand some of the people that are saying this are leftists but a lot of them are not and I think we get confused because we see uh, you know again we're looking back and we're saying okay these are people that are pro-Palestine or these are people that are um, that were against the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and covered the invasion of Iraq in 2003 uh, but but they're not leftists, and they actually hate leftists. They hate the secularism, they hate the equality, they hate uh, the republicanism that leftists express, especially leftists from the region. But from the West, we think, oh, they're pro-Palestine, you know, they're anti-invasion of Iraq 2003, they must be leftists. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a remarkable phenomenon. I mean, it ought it, to be traced further back. The, the need to express rhetorical or symbolic support rising to political or monetary or material support for Palestine has been kind of what uh, the, the political scientist Michael Hudson, he called it an all-Arab legitimated issue. So every Arab government of any kind has had to support Palestine as part of its moves towards domestic legitimacy. And some governments have uh, taken that quite far, such as the Gaddafi government's support for the Popular Front, for example, in the 70s. And ongoing, the, the Syrian government has uh, given, had, a, had close working relationships with Islamic Jihad and the Popular Front, whereas the, the regressive Arab regimes, you know, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, 
have mostly kept this support at the symbolic level and have offered some material support, for example, to the Hamas movement in uh, Gaza. But this has been more in the measure of trying to co-opt and contain them uh, to a very marked degree. So we need to understand it all occurring within this within this broader framework uh, that doesn't that that translates or needs to be interpreted certainly uh, in order to be understood in the U.S. context. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Iraq was a long time ago. That was, if you take 2011, it was eight years ago. And by now, it was 14 years ago. And there's a tendency amongst people to shift to the right. as they, you know, So they were opposing the war on Iraq, and they may have even been leftists then. And they would often have ceased being leftists now. And that's, that's, that's a fundamental shift. And we can, you know, there's lots of these people who have shifted very markedly. Second of all, part of how they've represented Syria itself has allowed some of them to retain credibility as whatever this very difficult and uh, confusing umbrella term leftist means. They've allowed to maintain credibility and that credibility in turn relies on them pushing forward this narrative of a revolution that they support and that we oppose because we're not committed to human emancipation. We're just committed to geopolitics, those of us on the anti-imperialist left, which is another target of smears. And by itself, this framework is actually vicious in the first place because geopolitics is not a term that I hear all that many anti-imperialists using. It's about things like state sovereignty, which are actually, that's the entire framework of the post-Nazi international juridical order. And it's meant to actually prevent wars of aggression and to allow the states to be sovereign and for political movements to fill that that state sovereignty with social and political meaning. And once you collapse that, you basically give carte blanche to anyone to intervene for any reason whatsoever, which is a very old imperial agenda to go in and save people from themselves. So this, this entire discourse has been topsy-turvy in the beginning. And it's also, but in a sense, it, it reflects the power of the anti-intervention discourse that even people calling for intervention, such as calling for lifting the, the so-called U.S. arms embargo, they actually have to say that what they're against is U.S. intervention. They say that the U.S. has been blocking anti-aircraft weapons from flowing in over the Jordanian and Turkish borders, and that we should be against U.S. intervention, therefore we should be against the U.S. blocking those shipments from going in. We can go a little further into, into that argument uh, and, and what, what has actually been going on in terms of the logistics of arms transports. But what's, what's significant is that they actually have to justify it with reference to anti-imperialism. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, was, I was struck by that argument. I was actually going to bring that up with you. Uh, a recent article a bit after uh, I saw an article after the uh, Tomahawk missile strikes on the Syrian airfield, saying mentioning this, saying it was comparing uh, Syria to Palestine, of course, as they always do, and they were saying how could you oppose what Israel's doing to the Palestinians and not oppose what Assad is doing to to the Syrian people, and don't you know that the U.S. has blocked these advanced anti-aircraft missiles from getting into the hands of the Syrian revolutionaries. And I just thought, I mean, it's so inconsistent because you you can't, ima- I can't imagine these people or any people saying that the U.S. is blo- complaining that the U.S. is blocking advanced anti-aircraft weapons from getting to Hamas, for example, 
or the Palestinians that are trying to fight Israel. That's just, that's like way outside of anything anyone could imagine saying publicly. But they make these comparisons with Palestine and then they talk about the blocking of these missiles as if anybody could ever say that the U.S. should supply Hamas with missiles. Yeah, it's it, it's quite absurd on a number of levels. I mean, the, the absurdity of the article you actually referred to, which was in Jacobin, and the author was Bashir Abu Manah. Um, the absurdity starts even with the personnel itself. Uh, this individual, who I used to be on relatively good terms with, and, uh, would publish his stuff in, in Jacobin on Palestine when I was editing the Middle East content there, uh, kept on pestering me for years to be publishing Gilbert Ashkar, who uh, took a rather torturous approach to, uh, to ensuring that the U.S. dissidents did not mobilize against the U.S. intervention in Libya. And he refused to call this supporting the Libya the intervention. Ashkar just said, well, he didn't want anyone. Yes, I remember this. He said he didn't want anyone opposing it, which comes to the same thing. The only way to stop something that the U.S. Yeah, he was, he was not for... He was not for intervention. He was neither for nor against, uh, and, and urged that we be able to counsel the interventionists once they had done so. And so this very much put him uh, on the opposite side of what I considered a, a fairly non-controversial red line. And Gilbert uh, I mean, uh, Bashir would, kept on writing to me, and I was civil to him and nice to him because I, I think he uh, has some interesting things to say on, on Palestine. He's a he's Palestinian from uh, 48. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's got a great book, I think a, a really good book on, on literature, right? Like Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice book, um, although he, he feels the need to uh, rouse up support for the U.S. destruction of Syria in the conclusion, unfortunately. He was quite insistent about this, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't really have time for it. So Bashir, uh, the long and short of it is that Bashir uh, helped orchestrate a kind of soft coup d'etat against me, a Jacobin, and... Since then, you know, the, the Jackman content on Palestine has had nothing on political prisoners, the scarcely mentioned right of return, uh, has, uh, has not really had a, a consistent anti-imperialist stance on geopolitics, but even on the Palestinian case, it's been, in my opinion, the coverage has been much worse. So, you know, and, and as for what it's done for Syria, it's not like anyone in editorial actually shifted their position on Syria. It's just been much, it's obviously much more convenient, and you get banner ads from the new Arab which is a, uh, a Qatari enterprise. You get banner ads when you uh, support the war on Syria. So it's just, uh, it's totally cynical. And Bashir wrote this article comparing what uh, the, the post-colonial state of Syria to, the, or to, to Israel is, is quite disturbing. It, 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 it almost boggles belief um, that, because for one thing, you know, the U.S., supported and created Israel, whereas the post-colonial Syrian state emerged out of resistance to French colonial sovereignty. So these aren't really units that one should intelligibly compare in the first place. This struck me as intellectually and morally bankrupt, but maybe it was convincing to other people, especially especially those who support the destruction of Syria. I, I can't uh, yeah, I, I doubt it changed anybody's minds, but uh, probably reinforced what people already thought. I did want to go back to Ashkar just because I remember uh, in when he was saying he didn't neither supported, you know, one shouldn't oppose the bombing of Libya, but one should 
not support the bombing of Libya. Uh, and he said, you know, next, if we if we call for a no-fly zone over Libya now in 2011, then the next time Israel uh, bombs Gaza, we, we can go out there and we can have a very powerful argument for, for arguing for a no-fly zone over uh, Israel. And, you know, after that happened, you know, Israel bombed Gaza in 2012 and 2014, and I don't remember, I don't know whether you saw any of these demonstrations uh, calling for a no-fly zone over Israel, but I certainly don't remember seeing them. Yeah, I mean, what it, what it does is it completely confuses and saps any clarity around a, a consistent anti-imperialist position. Uh, part of what we oppose about Israel and what the Palestinian left has historically opposed, why it has such regional and international appeal, is because it's such a crushing example of, if not like a condensation, of U.S. global racism. And now we're going to call for a, a, a no-fly zone. It just it confuses people beyond belief, and it's just it's the most disingenuous argument. And you can use as many words as one likes to cover up the basic line of argument being taken, but I don't find it particularly convincing, and I think it, it only serves to sow confusion. There's no that's the only political agenda. Here. Another another intra left line of, of reasoning, and they all all these roads lead to why we need to support the bombing of Syria, but but they're all different kind of constructions. One of them that I've seen is anti imperialists follow Chomsky in saying we have a primary responsibility for trying to uh, stop our governments from doing um, bad things in the world because that's where we can have the most effect. Uh, and it goes back to some of what you were saying about the idea of sovereign states and, and that sovereign state being the unit in which uh, you know, people can exercise their democratic and, and rights and, and develop their uh, capacities. And, but then the the opposite or the, the counter argument that I've seen is, well, how can we accede to this narrow nationalist argument when what we should be going for is a global working class solidarity and global working class solidarity with the Syrian people requires supporting uh, the destruction of their uh, their state. Yeah, and uh, this is a very old argument in a sense. I, I, I study Tunisia, and the, the same many of these same arguments were put forward by the uh, you know the, the trade unions linked to the French colonial socialist trade unions, as opposed to uh, the the more domestic indigenous trade unions linked to Tunisians. And some of them said, "Well, we're just going to ignore the the national question, pretend it doesn't matter." And the other ones were said insisted on the on the importance of the national question, and the national question continues to matter. Um, it, it is whole global South countries they continue to be destroyed. So it's not about internationalism versus parochial nationalism. It's about substantive versus uh, vacuous internationalism. It's about internationalism that takes account of one's location and the privileges and political opportunities that are available to one and that one has in a given location versus one that is very much blind to it and ends up being very idealist. I believe in international solidarity, but I believe that supporting the peoples of the global south in their struggles begins with looking at the ways that the U.S. government prevents people in the global south from determining the, the courses of their own lives and that 
frequently that given that we live in a world which is uh, currently broken up along national units, then part, uh, then part of that is going to take the appearance of nationalism. But th th this accusation that nationalism is parochial is actually historically a position that comes from uh, the colonial end of the so-called socialist movement and is, uh, is, is very chauvinist, in my opinion, and regressive. Um, and because people in given geographical territories will often have, living in that territory often imposes a certain common experience and a common fate on them. When the, like as when the U.S. destroyed Iraq, to, for people in Iraq to support the national resistance was, was that nationalism? And if, yes. And was it bad nationalism? Of course not. And you know the the Latin American experiments have seen a very creative and powerful reinvigoration of a national national popular and a recuperated discourse of sovereignty. And emanating from that sovereignty, they branched out into uh, more regional agendas and have uh, engaged in a more substantive internationalism. Uh, so to just sidestep how that happens through the how struggle marks the course of history and to just assert this kind of very idealist internationalist or global linked civil society struggles and this kind of discourse seems to come straight from the state department yeah yeah exactly and that those those origins and those debates are, are really interesting to trace and I think you know I, I'm, I'm happy with the discussion we've had about the left uh, and the targeting of the left and the, the imaginary left that has been supposedly silent and so on. I'm 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 also in very interested to talk to you about the targeting of the Palestine movement um, because uh, that has also, in addition to you know Syria being something that is used to attack the left, whatever the left is, claiming that the left has been totally inadequate on on this or that issue, which which comes up around every issue, but. Syria has been one, but but I've also found a, a, a really strong degree of targeting, and and in some cases destroying local student activist groups around Palestine. And I just you know I I know you have some experience and some something to say about that, so I'd like to ask you about that now. Absolutely. I mean, we could sense that this was becoming a rather urgent issue in, uh, you know, it was an urgent issue about Syria from, you know, from the outset. And it, it was very, it, it was apparent to me that there was an attempt to, to, that, and one can have a range of, I think, legitimate opinions about what was going on in the early months of what, of in Syria. But what was clear is that certainly the Gulf governments in the U.S. were looking to use whatever had happened and to elevate the strands they preferred and to use those strands to uh, justify or incite a militarization and destroy Syria. Uh, it's targeted particularly the Palestine movement in a, in a variety of ways. And one of the most uh, effective ways has been through uh, Yarmouk. The, what, what happened in the Yarmouk camp, uh, where what actually happened is still a bit, is still a bit cloudy, and and argued over, but one can certainly say that by by late 2013, there, the, the Yarmouk camp had been an arena of fighting between sectarian groups and 
militia that were on the same side as the Syrian government and that the Syrian government was deployed on the outskirts of Yadmoub camp basically in order to contain the situation and that one of the consequences of that was that food was becoming very difficult to access in the camp. There were a lot of actors actually bringing food in. It wasn't a hermetic siege by any means, but as always, whenever there's a situation in which food is harder to access, prices go up and the, <coughs> and the most vulnerable suffer. Um, and this, in turn, was being used as a way to split the Palestine movement, especially globally. So, in fact, an intern for the American Task Force for Palestine, which had been continuously funded by the Gulf uh, regimes and was a, a pro-normalization organization, uh, started writing a wide range of articles, smearing, you know, calling on us to take action about Yarmouk camp and so forth. And the basic call that came from the Palestinian factions, from Palestinian community organizations like USPCN, Alauba in the US, uh, the PLO, was that two things should happen. One, that there should be measures taken to ensure that the, the food could arrive into the camp so that food did not become a weapon of war uh, against the civilian population. And two, that these armed groups that whatever uh, support people within Yarmouk had for the Syrian, uh, what had occurred in Syria and the Syrian opposition, that certainly the armed groups did not appear to be broadly welcoming the camp. All relevant representative institutions appeared to be calling for the armed groups to leave. And that that was the basic demand. And so my student group, uh, recognizing that there was this attempt at manipulation going on, uh, you know, amplified those demands and situated them uh, in, in an anti-imperialist politics, identifying the U.S. role in, in fact, first using Israel to to divert Syria from what had been a progressive course up through 1967, and then setting it on its on a further rightward course after that. So, and then uh, also playing a role in destroying the PLO and also playing a role in militarizing the protests, all of which is openly acknowledged. And furthermore, presented for people living in the U.S. that they didn't stand outside that history, um, you know, any of negative things going on in Syria at the hands of the government. But in fact, insofar as that was relevant, they were responsible in part for it. Uh, and we think, you know, this is what a substantive internationalism looks like, identifying the way that U.S. power has actually constituted history as we confront it in front of us, for us anyway. Now, we were very, this was uh, Cornell Students and Justice in Palestine, we were very viciously attacked, and people were trying to say we were justifying the collective punishment, and it was uh, very disingenuous since we actually called directly for food to go in, so we weren't sure how you, we weren't sure how you could, at the same time, justify collective punishment and call for it to end. This is, it's incoherent, but the people making this attack ranged from uh, uh, primarily Chicago-based student groups, um, uh, people who more or less are various who were engaged in various forms of provocation from the Trotskyite movement, an international socialist organization, um, grassroots membership coordinators at the U.S. campaign to end uh, the occupation, <coughs> um, and so forth. And very broadly, we were, we and especially I um, were marginalized in the student movement. So we were told to dissolve ourselves during an April attempt to divest from uh, Israeli 
from Cornell Investments. We were doing a divestment campaign and they actually called for us to dissolve our chapter. Uh, and the individual who, who made that call uh, is actually friends with uh, a wide range of, uh, of student activists um, and people who at the time were on the coordinating committee of the National SGP. So really this was, uh, you know, this was a very, uh, this was a kind of a precursor to a first step in really splitting apart the Palestine movement. And it, uh, it, it only got worse and worse. So I mean, I'm sure you've seen the attacks on journalists linked to uh, Electronic Intifada and Mando Weiss, which are, you know, both, both have a broad range of politics, both on Syria and more broadly, but they're fundamental institutions that play, or media institutions, that play a role in supporting the Palestinian liberation movement, solidarity movement, and they play, uh, they're fundamental, and to attack them and distract them and sap their energy in this way and say either you're going to toe the line on U.S. intervention in Syria in terms of supporting it, supporting uh, a revolution that was simply and said the whatever there had been in 2011 they had zero progressive potential by 2014 zero and these people basically many of them were holding hostage the Palestine movement and to to this demand that were saying we don't really care if the Palestine movement collapses due to infighting if it won't support the the uprising and it's, it's clear that no, yeah. a movement can't really survive or flourish, certainly, under such pressures and under the pressure <coughs> of attempts to spin it. And if you take 2012, 13, 13, 14 versus 2015, 16, 16, 17, for example, the student movement, the volume of divestments has, uh, or attempted divestments has decreased by, I would estimate, a factor of 10. And this was the primary tactic of the student. Now, one can have, a, you know, tracing a direct linear line of causality between one and the other is, is difficult, although one can certainly identify concretely people who have been involved in, in saying we don't really want a movement if it doesn't support... Uh, what we call the Syrian revolution, blame the Syrian government for 100 or 99 or 95% of what's going on. Um, but it's it's clear that this is... It's been, oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, very yeah. And it, It's been very much racked with, racked with infighting. And, um, you know, certain pe places and people who have managed really to maintain a principle. Like, I've seen many people say... Uh, I don't talk about Palestine unless you're, you know, anti-Assad. Don't talk about Palestine. I don't want to hear anything about Palestine unless you support the Syrian revolution, which I just, I've always found to be a really bizarre line to take when everybody in your society is telling you to shut up about Palestine. You know, an additional condition uh, to be made that you're supposed to shut up about Palestine unless you agree with me about the facts uh, and, and interpretations of what the nature of this opposition to Assad is, it, you know, it, it doesn't strike me as something that has Palestine 
uh, at its heart, you know, that these doesn't seem to me to be people who are looking after Palestine's interests that are making this call. One has to be honest and state that a lot of, at least a lot of vocal young diaspora basically signed on to that position. And by a lot, I don't mean thousands. So I don't mean any, uh, I don't mean a numerically high percentage or, a, uh, you know, but I do mean uh, people who are active. A lot of them have taken this position, and so it makes things creates a great difficulty. Even though, if you look at the, the Palestinians in Syria, they've been very much split. A lot of them have been pro-government and pro-government in ways that, if you took this in the West, you would be accused of, uh, you know, eating Syrian babies for breakfast. But they've been very pro-government, and and also in Palestine. And so, the the, the bottom line is that there have been just just like on the issues, Palestinians are split. Any attempt, any any attempt to claim that there's a kind of unity on the issue is not really true, and so we should own the political position. We want to take a position on Syria. We should own it for ourselves and not hide behind one or another element, whether whatever our position be. Often it would uh, we end up working with people who we may disagree with about interpretations of what's going on in Syria, unless people prefer otherwise, which strikes me as very sectarian and uh, and has been manifestly very destructive. Uh, a theoretical question, going back to uh, to our discussion of the left debate, uh, another thing that I've heard, and I, I, I we haven't talked about this before, but I suspect you'll have something interesting to say about it. The idea that being anti-imperialist in the Syrian context really means opposing Russia and Iran because those are the real imperialists in Syria right now. To talk about who is or isn't an imperialist isn't a question of describing who is or isn't intervening if you don't like them or if you don't like the side they're supporting. It's a, it, it should be a theoretical category. It should be a theoretical category that derives from what was, what was going on before. Uh, and and it was used to interpret it and made sense of it, and not just kind of opportunistic, opportunistically deployed in order to justify whatever side one's on. So one can go back to 1917 and talk about, or earlier, and talk about Lenin's theory of imperialism resting on the export of capital. And in that case, what uh, Russia is not exporting capital to the Syria. At the current moment, Iran is expending capital in order to support the, the Syrian government. I mean, there's loans, there's, uh, I think there's oil shipments that are ongoing. Um, both, both forces are supporting the Syrian treasury and um, extending large credit lines. You know, the calling a, a post-colonial state, no matter what one wants to say about its political and social track record post-1970, calling on Allied forces to support the state institutions doesn't strike me as imperialism by any understanding of the word, uh, especially if one actually looks and tries to understand why both Russia and Iran have actually supported it. Now, this has been there's been a real paucity of analysis of both these forces. More so, there's been a, a, an absence of good analysis based on why Russia has responded to this call by the Syrian government. I mean, people say it's okay, it's to maintain its one Mediterranean outpost. Well, yeah, of course, that's certainly true, but that's kind of just uh, adds a little more detail to to the issue without clarifying what exactly is at stake. I would say for Iran, 
the Iranian government fundamentally understands that it is under siege by the West. I mean, it's basically surrounded by U.S. military bases. And to the extent that it's able to extend uh, either state or asymmetric popular militia-based arms capacity, uh, it's able to exert a certain pressure against the U.S. political goal of putting uh, both economic, political, diplomatic pressure on it in order to collapse the state institutions and reverse the 1979 I mean, this is the keystone of U.S. strategy in the region, to reverse 1979 um, and reimpose a client state on, on Iran. Uh, and also the, uh, you know, the, the Gulf states are, and Israel also play, uh, play their role in supporting and encouraging that strategy. But fundamentally, it emanates from 1979 U.S. strategic imperatives. And so the Russian support for, I mean, the Iranian support for Syria it is is quite defensive and reactive. And I really, I think it's the same for Russia. Yes, Russia does want to extend that. And yes, it's true that Russia appears had to have reconstituted the Soviet military industrial complex. And people are saying that it's sale or <coughs> other, other uh, provisioning of weapons to the Syrian government is uh, something that the domestic uh, arms industries are profiting off of. This may very well be true, but I, I don't think it uh, it accounts really for Russia. I mean, Russia is also under siege by the U.S. I mean, there may be a partial rapprochement under Trump, but I think this is part of a divide. It, it's an attempt to uh, target, uh, if anything, it's an attempt by the Trump administration to target China and Iran and attempt to leverage Russia outside of that so it can isolate people and take them one by one as opposed to uh, the Obama administration strategy, which was kind of a full-spectrum confrontation. Um, you know, the, during the tailing days of the Obama government, they moved uh, thousands of tanks right up practically to, the, to Russia's western border. Um, and Russia basically just recovered its Soviet levels of life expectancy, um, its GDP per capita military spending, uh, far, far, far under that of... Um, of the U.S., so all this is is very well known, and so people basically what people mean by imperialism is that the Russia is doing something they don't like, and therefore it's imperialism. And this is not a coherent theoretical uh, account of imperialism. I don't think at all. Um, it's you know no one has made a coherent account of whether or not Russia is uh, exporting a surplus, whether or not it's securing profit from its endeavors in Syria. I mean, what it most resembles, speaking in broad terms, is actually uh, the, the Soviet defensive strategy um, in Eastern Europe, where it actually cost the Soviet Union money to uphold these, uh, these states uh, as a kind of frontal, as a political military defense line against U.S.-European encroachment and aggression, and which was along the historic invasion route of Germany. Into, into, uh, you know, into the USSR. And that, I would say it has the most family resemblance to this pattern of action. Whether or not it's imperialist, uh, is, is quite absurd. The idea that Iran is acting in, in an imperialist manner, uh, in, in Syria just beggars belief. And such terms are, by these people are never applied to Saudi Arabia. I mean, I've seen estimates from, uh, Kamil Otragji, who, uh, is a Syrian, who, who used to get quite a lot of coverage, and he's estimated, and has now been excluded from Western media. I saw him estimate in one place that 
um, that the collective Western and GC Gulf, uh, Gulf communities, uh, uh, costs to support this war on Syria were 35 to 50 billion dollars of mercenaries and black ops and uh, weapons transfers and so forth. I don't know whether that's true. It, it strikes me as a ballpark estimate. Um, and the amount of, Syria, of Iranian troops that are on the ground is not very many at all. If uh, one looks at the, we don't have accurate information, but we do have accurate information. We do have accurate information on death counts for pro-government, non-Syrian militia, and it's a few thousand at most, whereas uh, the broad range of anti-government militia, including both uh, Daesh and all the rest of the anti-government militia, the foreign dead, according to the counts of the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is problematic, but uh, at least uh, more credible than any other source, at least, has said that 50,000 have died. So that tells you something about who's doing the fighting and who sending in tens of thousands of mercenaries is not imperialism, but sending in, you know, a third or a quarter of that many is. Uh, I don't know what kind of imperialism we're talking about. I said it sounds more like we're deploying concepts in order to justify U.S. aggression. Maybe we can move towards wrapping it up, but I wanted to return to your statement here where you say, we were the first to raise our voices in, since 2011 against the U.S. Gulf pouring weapons in when just thousands were dead, not hundreds of them. And that, you know, that really burns me to think about that, that how how long this has been allowed to go on, how many more how many more deaths have, have happened because people just dug in and wouldn't take an anti wouldn't join a kind of an anti war position and and just kept digging in no matter what the, the facts on the ground were telling them. Been a really ugly specter. People will shift at various times to political position. And the flood of propaganda about Syria was immense. Even now, I would say it costs more to people to talk to speak out about Syria than it costs them to speak out about Palestine. So if you look at U.S. Uh, Middle East scholars or you know, Middle East academia, the number of people speaking out against the U.S. war on Syria is, is very few, very few indeed. Even in, in 2011, by July, August, September, December, it was clear that, that there was a militarization going on. It was including offensive attacks against Syrian army installations, that there were reports of people crossing the Lebanese border. And this is actually that Al Jazeera refused to air video of this by someone named uh, Hassan bin Jindal, who went on to found a pan-Arabic Al-Mayadeen channel, which has taken a very different stance on the Syria conflict. He represented the Arab nationalist current. Al Jazeera, and he resigned from Al Jazeera because they wouldn't share this video. Um, and if one talks to uh, Lebanese communists, they'll say yes, there were people, there were training camps in the north of Lebanon, they were sending fighters. Now this isn't, I don't want to sidestep or really enter into a very fraught discussion about what was indeed going on in Syria and what was the dominant dynamic. Even uh, very anti-imperialist media like Ibrahim Hamin and Al-Akhbar, the Lebanese uh, leftist newspaper, have criticized the Syrian government for putting in place what it called the security solution uh, in response to what was going on in March, April, May, uh, meaning choosing to respond to nonviolent protests that met with uh, that met with sometimes murder in the words of Ahmad uh, Mosin, who was also a, a columnist for Al Akbar. Now, again, this is uh, whatever was going on in Syria. And, uh, 
you know, I, I do think the rhetoric of the revolution at any stage was more a propaganda, was far more a propaganda edifice than uh, meaning to illuminate what was actually going on in Syria. And as for what people outside were saying, you could barely trust it at all. It was clear that there was an attempt to use whatever had gone on in Syria to destroy Syria itself, as, a, as is the case basically in the entire planet. The role of people in, uh, in the Corps, in Canada and the U.S., was to identify what the government was doing and act to come out against it. And those of us speaking out about this were accused, even then, we were accused of denying Arab agents. So we might say, okay, the U.S. is basically acting in total uh, convergence with Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And they say, well, you're denying the agency of the Arab ruling class. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, these co- these countries are, first of all, they're choked. They, they were, you know, the modern states were basically half created by the U.S., their entire capital flows, their uh, developmental apparatuses. You know, they rely 100% on the U.S. Their treasuries go to the U.S., their weapons go to the U.S., the U.S. police are there, they're under the U.S. security umbrella. In, in essence, they're, they're, they're U.S. protectors. So what does this rhetoric of agency mean other than to you know, other than to deny... I think it means shut up. Yeah, it means shut up. And this is really all... And, you know, the people saying shut up have come from... have been emerging out of the world war since 2011. They want people to shut up, and that's their basic agenda. I mean, it was clear what Turkey's role has been, and it's clear that this has been in basic... This has been in coordination with the U.S., which has operating rooms uh, in both Turkey and also in Jordan, and it's been reported including by Andrew Coburn, that they're CIA agents coordinating weapons flows on the Turkish border. And there are militants going in and the Turkish border guards going in. Now, what, and it was clear as early as 2011 that this was going on. And it was clear that Syria already in 2011 was a massive international news network. Now, pause and suggest what, what the people saying that this wasn't going on with U.S. approval or suggesting is that from 2011, Turkey, Jordan, and the Gulf states who are historical U.S. allies, were carrying out extensive operations in one of the most hot-button conflict zones or zones of U.S. imperialism over the last 90 years, right? We're carrying out huge policies that the U.S. didn't want them to doing and, doing, and basically the U.S. just saw did its best unsuccessfully and perhaps to control these people, and all it could do w- was to prevent U.S. Uh, was prevent anti-aircraft weapons going. And now the, the flip side of this is that to report a more complicated narrative going back to March 2011 also meant to complicate this narrative of a perfect revolution or a revolution at all. And the the revolution narrative has been used to justify any claims that go on, because uh, any claims that of uh, U.S. and Gulf malfeasance in that in that region in that arena, and because revolution is meant to carry its own legitimacy. If there's a revolution, it doesn't need to draw on any external claims for legitimacy. Uh, we just assume, okay, there's something beautiful going on, and we need to support it, which is precisely why this revolution rhetoric continues to live on because it serves quite a powerful use for the propagandists of destroying Syria. And so if there's a revolution and it's calling for U.S. weapons, or if there's a revolution that's calling for U.S. Uh, no-fly zone, at the very least, we might not need to support such actions, but we certainly shouldn't oppose them, right? Which was the same rhetoric of Gilbert Ashkar, almost to the letter about Libya. And this has been the, the upshot of this, has been that this war, you know, which by in, in the first six months, it claimed at a very rough estimate 3,500 dead in November 2011 when people were trying to bring in 
U.S. popular attention to the U.S. role there. And since then, uh, the, the dead are basically countless. Maybe it's half a million. Whatever one wants to claim about any the violent role of the government, there's zero dispute among serious people that the U.S. role has been absolutely massive in destroying Syria. I mean, we know we know this both from you know open and public reporting, and we know it because this is what the U.S. government has basically announced that it wants to do since 2006. It said we want to destabilize and destroy Syria, and that these people, you know, have said, okay, we don't want you opposing any of them, but. If you do, you're responsible for what the Syrian government does. Whereas they, who don't want us opposing the U.S. government or the fight, they who don't want us to do what we can actually do to oppose the ongoing violence, they don't then become responsible for the consequences of their words, which has basically meant to destroy the country. And uh, it's very much upside down in fact. So last question, where do you think this is all going? I mean, I, I studied Haiti, and in Haiti there was a fake revolution that was used to destroy an, an elected popular government and then enact an occupation of the country that's gone on for I guess 13 years now and a lot of people who supported that and said you know Aristide you know the president of Haiti at the time has become unpopular and it's time for him to go and we support his overthrow from the left a lot of those people have just kind of forgot that they ever uh, said that you know, they're, they're, the statements have been have been scrubbed from the internet. You know, and, and those of us who remember don't really talk about it anymore because you know they're they're back to doing their good work against neoliberalism or whatever it was. Um, so I'm I'm almost, you know, I'm I'm sort of disgusted by that on the one hand, but on the other hand, I'm 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 almost hopeful that that's that's something that could happen for Syria where. Uh, you know, people will come around uh, to this, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't see a lot of people coming around even now. I wonder what your sense of it is. Is, is there is there any sense that this is changing on the horizon, or is this just a sign of how easy it is to capture and undermine solidarity and anti-imperialism? Broadly, I think it's a sign of uh, how easy it is to capture people. I mean, people have to admit either that they were wrong, that they were duped, or that they were complicit in lies. If this was 2013, you know, there's people who switched positions. There's people. I, I think that was late, but people switched, fine. Um, and people switched positions in 2014. We're almost halfway through 2017. It's very late. Uh, for people to begin to switch positions and accept that they were allied with U.S. imperialism, that they were allied with Israel. They just, for one, it seems very unlikely that they're going to do it. For two, it seems that there's still hope in pushing the destruction of, of Syria. I mean, the project is ongoing because the scale of the U.S. defeat is is very large and it is underappreciated. The U.S. thought, the U.S.'s goal hasn't necessarily been to overthrow the Syrian government. It's been primarily to destroy Syria, but it's also very deeply wanted to, to for Syria to change course on foreign policy because foreign policy, uh, foreign policy that supports the sovereignty of states, which is basically Syrian foreign policy for 
to some extent Palestine, to a much larger extent Lebanon and Iran, is a foreign policy that the U.S. won't tolerate in the region when the U.S.'s primary goal in the region is to reverse the revolution in Iran. So this attack, this assault, is still ongoing. And many of these people who have staked out positions are actually, you know, they're the cultural complement to this assault. I don't think that they're independent agents. I don't, in fact, think we can be independent agents. But these people, a lot of them, are bought and paid for. They're bought and paid for by Qatar, and they're bought and paid for by the U.S., and they have built lucrative careers and reputations uh, by being intellectual mercenaries of a U.S. assault on a sovereign country, which the U.S. intends to continue until it's somehow forced to stop for one reason or another. I haven't really even thought about, you know, I haven't even thought or hoped for people to shift their ground. What I have hoped for is people who are scared to speak out, to speak out. Those are the people I'm most concerned about, that I hope that they can overcome the intimidation and the thuggery and speak out in defense of uh, Syria as a nation uh, and against the war going on against Syria in which the U.S. government is so heavily complicit. But for the other people, the real heavy ideologues, I don't, I don't see them ever shifting at all. Well, Max, thank you so much. This has been a great uh, discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're in Tunis doing your field work, so doubly thanks for, for taking the time to do this. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh,